Matthew 21, verses 23 through 32. And when he, this is Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, Jesus said, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And then he goes on, he says, what do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll see that this section here is a confirmation of pretty much everything that we just studied last week. It's a kind of a putting it all together. You see, the Jews have been given enough light to believe. They've had the law. They had the prophets all testifying about the seriousness of sin, the promise of a righteous branch, the son of David, who would come to be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 9-6 also told them that the one who would be punished for their sins would also be God himself. And then John the Baptist came announcing Jesus' coming and even pointing him out at least twice as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Go to John chapter 1. Let me kind of show you. Again, as you're turning to John 1, let, let this sink in again. All through the nation of Israel's history, they've had God's word and prophets and all these different things pointing to the coming one who is going to be that savior. And as we even looked at last time we were together, actually two times ago when we were together, he even rode into Jerusalem on the day that the prophecy said the Messiah was gonna come. John the Baptist even came announcing his coming and points him out. Look at John 1, 29 through 36. The next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend, on, descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, I'm going to ask you, could John the Baptist have been any more clear? Here's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. All those things that the Old Testament and the law had been pointing to and the prophets have been promising. On top of that, he even said, this is the Son of God. He even said, that's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he said, look, I had it confirmed because the one who sent me to baptize told me the one you're preparing for, he's going to have this happen to him. They had all this light. They had enough light to believe. But they still wouldn't believe. So because they wouldn't believe, God blinded their eyes so that they couldn't believe. Go over to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, look at verses 35 through 43. John chapter 12, verse 35 says it this way. So Jesus said to them, to the Jews, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now look closely. They would not believe. Therefore, God determined the time when it was that they could not believe. Like Pharaoh. I'm glad you brought that out. If you ever really do a study of Pharaoh, it's a very interesting study. You go back and look at that time when God sends... Moses to go speak to Pharaoh and the plagues. At the very beginning, God tells Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. But if you look at it, he doesn't harden Pharaoh's heart until the end. Pharaoh actually throughout it hardened his own heart. You actually take a Bible and take a, a marker and you mark all the places in the story where it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then all of a sudden you'll see it flip. And it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart from that point on. Very interesting. Actually, you'll see that he gives Pharaoh one more chance. There'll be a God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then there's one more opportunity for Pharaoh. And after that one, the rest of them are all God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But I don't want to talk about the Jews hardening their hearts. I want to talk to you about Christians hardening their hearts. Now, again, the unbeliever hardening their heart is going to put themselves in a place where they can't be saved. But I want to talk to you Christians about the fact that it's very possible for Christians to get a hard heart. You're not going to lose your salvation if you do that. Hopefully you do understand that if God has confirmed your salvation and sealed you with his spirit, you're his and you will spend eternity with him because of his word and his promise. But it's very possible for Christians to get a hard heart and to lose the sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. And the Bible teaches that if Christians get to a point where they have lost their sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and they're not listening and they've developed that hard heart, sometimes God takes Christians home early. The Bible in 1 John chapter 5 calls it the sin unto death. Ananias and Sapphira, for example, could be an example of what we're talking about. 1 Corinthians 11 says that some were taking the Lord's Supper, not only sick, others are dead because of it, taking it incorrectly. The best way I can explain it to you is to remind you of, of something I might have told you a while back. I might not have. I shared this last night with the Tuesday night crowd and I looked on their faces and a lot of them looked like they'd never heard it before. But years ago when our kids were little, they're all grown and out of the house now. But when our son, AJ, was about maybe six, seven years old, it was time for bed. And he had a nighttime routine that actually being a little boy, Becky had actually written on a piece of paper and put it on his bathroom mirror, all the things he had to do every night because he, otherwise he wouldn't brush his teeth. He wouldn't do the things that he was supposed to do. And so when it was bedtime and the time for the routine uh, came, it was one night we were in the living room watching something on TV and we turned to AJ and said, okay, bud, time for you to go start your bed bathroom routine. And then once you're done, come out here and give us a kiss. Good night. It's time for bed. He said, OK, and he got up, he went into his room. About an hour goes by and then Becky and I realize AJ didn't come back. So I get up and I go check and I walk into his room. He's fully dressed and he's sitting on his bed being a horrible, horrible kid, just reading a book. And uh, the old me before God taught me about parenting and grace and getting to the heart, the old me would have just brought the hammer down. You broke the rules. You disobeyed us. And folks, let me just tell you, hopefully you understand this about your Heavenly Father. He's not about the rules. He's about your heart. And you're going to hear us talk about that tonight. So I sat down next to him and I said, let me ask you a question. You did hear us, right? Say it was time for your bathroom routine. He goes, yeah. I go, what happened? He goes, Dad, I came in and I knew I was supposed to do that. But I saw the book. I thought I'll just read it for a little bit. And I got distracted and I've been reading it. I said, okay. I said, let me ask you another question. I said, at any time during reading this book, did you ever have a thought come through your head? I need to put the book down and go do my bathroom routine. And he goes, yeah. I go, what'd you do with that thought? He said, I pushed it out of my mind. I said, that's what I want to talk to you about. You see, God's given us his Holy Spirit when we're his children. At this point, AJ was his child. And he's given us a conscience that he uses as well. And he speaks to us through that sometimes. And when God speaks to us, we either have to learn how to listen and obey or we get real good at just tuning him out. But if you get real good at tuning him out, pushing him away, as you put it, you'll end up getting what the Bible calls a hard heart. where You don't even hear him talk anymore. I said, bud, I'm more interested in the fact that you have to learn how when he speaks, you listen. And folks, I just want to challenge you. We can sit here looking at it, and you're going to see uh, 
as we get into this some more tonight. God really cares about our hearts more than anything. We're going to talk about some stuff that's going on in the world today. And we're going to talk about some of the stuff and how the Christians are responding. And you may be surprised at where I'm going to go. Because as you're going to see tonight later on, God cares right now more about the church than he does what's going on in the world. Right now, he's far more concerned with the church than he is with what's going on in the world. Go back to Matthew 21, though, and notice how in Jesus' answer to them, in answer to their question, he first gave them a question that actually showed their hearts. And then when they said, we don't know, were they saying we don't know? What were they really saying? We don't want to say. Back in Matthew 21, verses uh, uh, 23 through 27, he, they were really saying we don't want to say. Exactly. We don't want to say. They knew he was from God. John's, John's authority was from God. They knew that, but they didn't want to admit that. So Jesus actually repeated their heart answer by saying, since you don't want to say, I won't tell you either. Did you notice how he responds there? They said, we don't know. He goes, I won't tell you either. In other words, I know what you really are saying. You're really saying, I know, but I don't want to say. I'm not going to tell you. God says, Jesus says to him, I'm not going to tell you either. I have an answer. I know the answer, but I'm not going to give it to you. Just like you have an answer and you know the answer, you're not going to give it to me. The sooner we acknowledge that God knows our hearts and our thoughts and our true feelings, the better we'll be. I'm going to say it to you again. And I'm going to show you from Scripture. The sooner that we acknowledge that God knows our thoughts, our true feelings, and our hearts, the better we'll be. Go to Matthew chapter 9. <clears throat> Again, like I said, God's working on our hearts. That's where he's really more in most interested in. He's not really interested in our actions. He's really not. You know why? Because he's already told us in Luke chapter 6 that out of the heart comes our actions. And if he can change your heart, if he can get a hold of your heart, the actions are just going to follow. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And getting into a boat, he, Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people bought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jump over to chapter 12. You'll see it again in another setting. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 25. Matthew 12, 22. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him. So the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Look at verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Again. He knew their thoughts. Go to Luke chapter 7. I'm not going to read this whole story. We're going to look at just verses 36 through 40. But here you'll see that Jesus starts having a conversation with this guy because of what he was thinking. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 40. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were really a prophet, he would know who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. 
And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And of course, the guy said, say it, teacher. And then he goes on and you know the story. He tells the story about the two people that have been forgiven a debt, one a big, big debt and a little, one on a little debt. Which one do you think will love more? But look closely. Jesus starts a conversation with the guy in answer to what the guy was thinking. The guy never said a thing, never even intended it to get to Jesus. And Jesus started a conversation with him. I'm going somewhere with this. Please listen. This is how God deals with you and me. He already knows what we're worried about. He already knows what we fear. He already knows what is going on in the inner thoughts. Sometimes stuff we don't even realize. And we get so focused on, did I do the right thing or not do the right thing? And we think God's looking at our actions. And we spend a lot of time as Christians apologizing for what I did or what I said or what I... Listen. God is more interested in your heart and your thoughts and what comes out of your heart than he is your actions because he knows if he can get to your heart, he can then take care of all the other stuff. In other words, as one preacher put it, you got to stop getting rid of the spider webs and kill the spider. We spend all our time getting rid of the spider webs, but we don't kill the spider. There's going to keep being those same problems. And that's why a lot of us struggle sometimes and Satan's able to mess with us and make us question if we're really saved because I keep doing that same thing. But let me also say something to you. Some of the stuff, and I'm going to put it this way, if not all of the stuff that you're going through right now in your life, health, financial, work, relationships, whatever, listen to me. God is doing it to get to your heart. He'll orchestrate situations just to get to your heart. We just want the situation fixed, the better job or more income or the health. You don't get it. Why did Jesus say to us in this world, you will have trouble. You will have tribulations. But take heart. In me, you'll have peace. I've overcome the world. What, what does he use all this trouble to do? To draw us to him and to show us what's really going on deep in there. And he, he's not mad. Just like me that time when I sat down next to AJ and said, that's where I'm more concerned. Let's talk about that. It's not about whether you obeyed your mom and your dad. It's more about your heart, teaching you how to recognize me speaking, that kind of a thing. And folks, I hinted at it. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. It sounds like the men's uh, addiction ministry that I've been involved in over a decade. They all come to the first meeting thinking, how can they work harder to stop instead of uh, taking the layers of the onion off and finding out what the root cause is that's causing it in the first place. You got it. That's it exactly. If that's how the ministry works, it's excellent. That's it. Go to 1 Peter, though. I want you to see something in 1 Peter, in chapter 4, 1 Peter 4. We're going to start in verse 12, but we're going to get to a verse that all of a sudden is going to surprise you. Because as you start reading in this section, you'll go, oh, yeah, I recognize this section. No, there's something in here you probably haven't seen. First Peter chapter four, look at verse 12. Beloved. Isn't that awesome? He's about to say you're going through trouble, but he starts it with beloved. You're loved. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. By the way, we read that and we think, well, I'm suffering because I'm a believer. There's more to it than that. Do you know that the book of Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience through suffering? Some of the suffering you're going through because you're a child of God, because you're in Christ, is because God's predestined to conform you into the image of his son. And if he taught Jesus how to learn obedience through suffering, what do you think he's going to be doing with us? He's getting to our hearts. Keep reading. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you'll be, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Listen to verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? 
Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In the midst of what's going on in the world right now with the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movements and all the rioting and all the different things happening and the way the globe, everybody is now talking about how this looks like the end of the world and, 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 and it looks like the end of America and it looks like, you know what, and it may could be. You know, the Bible says there is a time of judgment coming on the world. And Jesus said there's going to be chaos and there's going to be a false Christ that comes and tries to bring a false peace for a period and all that. We know that's all coming. But as much as Christians are now saying, God's got to do something about this world. God says, I already showed you. I'll deal with them when it's time. Right now, in the last days before that time when I come back, who's he really working with? Us. So I'm going to challenge you as Christians, take your eyes off of what's going on in the world and put them back on Jesus and allow him to speak to your heart. This all came back from Jesus showing when he was on the earth at that time, as the, the spirit was moving his drawing from the Jews to the Gentiles, as you're going to see in just a second. Uh, at that time, he was talking to them about their hearts. And he said, look, one said, I won't. But then he did. One said, I will, I go, sir, but didn't do it. Which one actually did the will of the Father? And he said, look, you've had all this revealed to you, yet you won't believe because you've hardened your hearts. Be careful in these last days that we're in in the church that you don't become one of those Christians that's more interested in getting God fixing everybody else around the world instead of you. Because that's where he's focusing right now through the it's time for judgment, verse 17, to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, don't worry. He's going to take care of those who don't obey the gospel of God. Now, he also, by telling that parable of the two sons, he shows them that words mean nothing if they aren't, they aren't followed by true actions. And true actions that are, are rewarded only come from the heart. Go to John chapter 2. I'm going to show you real quick just a, a few quick passages that kind of illustrate this point. Again, God already knows our hearts and he knows whether or not our response is sincere. In John chapter two, look at verses 23 through 25. It says, now when he, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. If I had just read to you verse 23 and asked you if those guys were saved, you would all probably said yes. They saw the signs he was doing. They believed in his name. But Jesus says, actually, um, I know their hearts and it's not real. Then the parable of the soil say that seed falls on the rocky soil, springs up, sure looks like salvation. But when trouble comes and mama dies and God wasn't there or I lost the job and God didn't come through, they walk away. Because they had no root. You and I can be fooled. We could even fool ourselves. I don't believe the Bible teaches you can fool yourself forever. I think those who go to hell know it. I think, and that's another whole study for another time. I don't believe there'll be anybody that shows up in heaven and says, well, I didn't, I mean, sorry, in hell and said, I didn't know. I believe that they did know and they chose to reject it. But what about that passage, Jim, that, that says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, on that day, many will say, didn't we prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons? Don't miss what they're saying. They're not saying we thought we had faith. They're saying we were doing it. Their faith was in their works. Go to Matthew chapter 15. Look at verse 8. You ever notice in this story, uh, we're going to Matthew 15, 8, but in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man doesn't awaken Hades and go, how did I get here? He doesn't seem to be too surprised. Matthew 15, verse 8, Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes when we're singing in church, I have to stop and say, Lord, the words are what I want my heart to be saying. But I got to be honest with you, I'm not feeling it. 
Have you ever been singing in church? Maybe the psalm that says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs after you. And as you're just belting it out, have you ever thought, I want that to be the case? Hey, let me encourage you. God knows your heart. He knows whether or not that really is the case. But he's not mad. He wants your heart. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 5, chapter, sorry, chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5 says this. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the perseverance of Christ. Are there times when you aren't really panting for God like a deer pants for streams of water? Don't, like you just said earlier, try to work harder to get there. Go spend some time in prayer and say, Lord, do that work in my heart. Lord, I want this to be true. Could you do that work in me? Could you direct my heart to the love of God and the perseverance of Christ? Go real quick to Ezekiel chapter 33. I jokingly told the group last night that I think we've been out of Ezekiel long enough that I can say turn to Ezekiel and nobody's going to get the twitches. But look at Ezekiel 33 verses 30 through 33. Very interesting statement here. Ezekiel 33 Verses 30 through 33, God is speaking to the prophet Ezekiel and he says, As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come and they sit before you as my people and they hear what you say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. And when this comes, this judgment, and it will, and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Isn't that interesting? They'll even tell each other, let's go hear the word of the Lord. And they gather and they're excited about being there. But they're not going to do it. And folks, boy, did that describe many of our churches today? Years ago when I was pastor in Chicago, there was an interesting couple that came every Sunday. The wife was a believer. The husband was not. And he not only wasn't a believer, he made sure everybody knew, I don't believe any of this stuff. But he came every week. His wife would come in a separate car. She would come and be involved in Sunday school and all that. And then he would show up only in time for the message. He wouldn't even come for the singing. He would just come for the preaching. But when it was the end of the message and I'd have them all stand and we'd give them an opportunity to come and respond to the gospel, he would always get up and walk out at that time. Every Sunday without fail would not miss a week. But everybody knew he didn't believe it. He ends up in the hospital after a couple of years of me being pastor there. So I go to visit him and I said, I got to be honest with you, you baffle me. I know you don't believe a word I say. He goes, I don't believe a word you say. Then why do you come every week? That's what he said. He goes, I like how you say it. <laughs> and that exactly what he said was told here. They're going to think that you're just a really good order and like a person that plays an instrument. Well, they love hearing it, but they ain't going to do it. Again, take your eyes off everybody else. Is God trying to get to your heart? He loves you. Beloved, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of faith. Don't worry, God's going to deal with the world and all this stuff going on. Don't get so focused on all that's going on in the world, you miss out on the fact that right now God's more interested in dealing with His church right now. That's where God's at work right now is, is in His church. He'll take care of the world. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 21 and look at verses 33 through 46. And we'll close uh, Matthew 21 tonight. When we come back from Becky's and my latest travels coming up the next couple of months, we'll pick back up in Matthew 22. But look at Matthew 21 right now, verses 33 through 36. He said, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and he put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it out to tenants. And he went to another, into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. 
Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Now, if you were with us last week, we read Luke's account of this same parable of the vineyard last week. If you remember, the vineyard is who? Israel. The vineyard is Israel. And so, remember we looked last week at how, we looked back at Isaiah and how he called Israel his fig tree and his vineyard. And he went to get grapes from them, but they were producing wild grapes. But this week, I don't want to look at, I want to look less at Israel's losing their role of God's chosen fruit producer. And look at who he's now given this role to. Look again at verses 41 and 43. Matthew 21, verse 41, they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Verse 43, therefore, Jesus says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Now, hopefully, you know who this is. Not just the Gentiles. The church. It's the church, which is made up mostly of Gentiles. There's still some Jews, as you're going to see in just a little bit. The role that God had given Israel to be the light of the world to the rest of the world of who God is. And he's revealed himself to them. He created this nation himself out of one man. And he did it so that he would reveal himself to them so they would be a light to the world. And that the Gentiles would believe and the world would believe. And they were to be his fruit producers. But they didn't. They made it more about themselves. And so he says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to take it from you and I'm going to give this role to people who will produce my fruit. Go to John chapter 15. I want to talk about us tonight. John chapter 15, look at verse 16. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. So Jesus says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I'm going to give this role to people who will produce fruit. And that's us. Jump back to chapter 15, verses one through eight. And by the way, pay close attention to this because it's going to be very, very important at the very close of our study tonight. If you want to go home tonight, you've got to pay attention to this because I'm going to give you a quiz at the end. And if you get it, I'm telling you, you never had a professor that says this will be on the test. John 15, 1 through 8 will be on the final quiz. Quiz. So Jesus said, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. But if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You all notice what was said over and over and over as he was speaking to them? Abide in me and bear fruit. 
bear fruit. Again, that whole context of what we're looking at. He wanted Israel to be producing fruit. They didn't. He's now given the role to the church during the church age. Now, he's not done with Israel, but they've been put on hold. They've experienced a hardening, according to Romans chapter 11, verse 25, in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And then all Israel that's left at the end of the tribulation will be saved. But for now, the people that he's using to produce its fruit, his fruit, is the church. Go to Ephesians, though. Here, I want you to see that we haven't replaced Israel We've been grafted into Israel, as Romans 11 talks about. But look at how Ephesians describes it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. And, and by the way, later on, you could always go back and look at Romans 11 and see that God says through Paul that he's going to graft them back in. But right now, the church has not replaced Israel. It's been grafted into Israel, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Look at Ephesians 2, verses 11 and through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross." thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to, the, to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So that role that was given to Israel has now been given to the church. He's not done with Israel. He's still using Israel because the church has been grafted into the, that vine, if you will. And at the same time, we've been built onto the foundation of the apostles and the prophets and all that. So the church is not replaced Israel, we've been added into what God was doing, but because Israel as a nation walked in disobedience, he's given us that role for right now, but we're still connected to them. Don't lose that. But now go with me to 1 Peter chapter 4, because you're going to see this described again in terms that we've been reading all throughout our study tonight. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, look at verses 4 through, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Yes, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. Look at what the scripture says here. And you're going to see a transition that I want you to grasp. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. We just read that at the end of Ephesians 2. As a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race. Didn't that sound familiar? Does anybody remember what Jesus said? I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Don't miss this. How do we produce fruit? Well, let me back up because we're going to get to that question in a little bit. What is the fruit producing that he's looking for? Look again at verse, uh, put my glasses down, verse 9. But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are to be producing fruit by pointing people to Jesus. That's it. He's the light of life, the true light. We're to be proclaiming his excellencies, the excellence of him. Listen, I'm not saying that you're supposed to have people respond. You're just to be proclaiming Jesus, pointing them to Jesus. Didn't Jesus himself say that narrows the road that goes to eternal life and few there be that find it and wides the path that goes to destruction and most go there? Didn't we already read in 1 Peter chapter 4 that tonight, didn't we just read that if, it, if the righteous will scarcely be saved? We got to stop focusing on how many people respond and just go out and tell people about Jesus and point them to him. That's how we produce fruit. We point them to the light. That's all we're to do. So go back with me real quick to John chapter 1 and look at verses 1 through 18. All of a sudden you're going to see this all come together in John's introduction. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God and the word was God. Now he, the word, was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And he came to his own, and his own people, the Jews, did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor blood, not of the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now no one has ever seen God. The only God, though, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let that sink in for a minute. There's only one God, right? The only God who's at the Father's side has made him known. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, but the Word also was God. There's only one God, but he's always manifested himself in three persons. And the one who is at the side of the Father, by the way, he's still God, the one who is the Father, who is also the Son, he's made the Father known. And John says, look, in the beginning was this one who made everything. In him was light, and his light was the life of men. And him was life, and, him, and the life was the light of men. John came. He wasn't the light. He just came to bear witness about the light. By the way, did John produce fruit, or did John not produce fruit? Because most people didn't respond to John's preaching. There were a lot who did, but for the most part, a lot of people, the Jews rejected. The Jews didn't. Did John produce fruit? Yeah, because all he did was point people to the light. He kept pointing out Jesus. That's his job. Whether they respond or not is not our call. We've been given this role now. Go with me to Matthew chapter 4. Let me show you how Matthew chapter 4 is kind of going to go quick, but we're going to sum up a little bit of what we've been looking at in our study of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Now when he heard, this is Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jump over to chapter 5. Look at verses 14 through 16. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Remember, Jesus, who's at the Father's side, made the Father known. We point people to Jesus, and in doing so, we bring glory to the Father by pointing them to Jesus. Now, didn't the scripture say in John 1 that John wasn't the light? But how come Jesus now says we are the light? Because he indwells us. The light's not you. I'm going to say something to you that I hope doesn't offend you. But, uh, we're the fixture, if you will. Yeah, I like that. Um, take your what would Jesus do bracelet off and stop trying to be like Jesus. You can't. Too many Christians have thought, well, what would Jesus do here? And they, in their own flesh, in their own will, try to determine what they think Jesus would do, and they try to do it. Uh, our job is to let your light that you have, him within us, shine through us in such a way that they see Jesus. We don't just talk about him. We let him shine through us. Go to Matthew chapter 28. You say, Jim, we haven't gotten there yet. I know, but... Go to Matthew 28. Look at verses 18 through 20. Jesus, after his resurrection, came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to wrap up in, little, in the last few scriptures here that kind of puts it all together. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, look at verses 3 through 6. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 6. Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, we know who that is, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from, being, from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. If you know the rest of this passage, it goes on and says, oh, by the way, we've been given this treasure in what? And jars of clay. Why? So that his glory would be seen as we let Jesus shine through us in the midst of cancer, in the midst of financial struggle, in the midst of trials and tribulations. I'm going to ask you some questions as we wrap up tonight. Where's your focus? Are you producing fruit? Are you pointing people to Jesus? By the way, don't try to get them to join a church. Point them to Jesus. Don't get them to try to join your political party. Just point them to Jesus. Don't even try to get them to be like you unless you are walking with Jesus. Point them to Jesus. Here's your quiz. Here's your question. Here's the test that's going to determine whether or not you get to go home. All right. How do we do this then? If we're, if we're to produce fruit by pointing people to Jesus, how do we do this? Let him shine through us. Very good. But how do we let him shine through us? We humble ourselves and we listen to God. Are oh, you getting close? And we do what he asks. We're, you're getting real close. The answer, by the way, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, right before where Paul said we don't proclaim ourselves. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at verses 4 through 6 and then verses 17 and 18. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 4 through 6 and then 17 through 18. Paul says, for such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Don't miss that. We're not to be teaching people rules and regulations. Here's how to be a good Christian. You do these things and you don't do these things. We point them to Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and faith. But look at verses 17 and 18. 
Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. How do we do this? Remember John chapter 15? What do you have to do in order to produce fruit? Abide. Folks, listen to me. You produce fruit by looking at Jesus yourself. Just spend time with Jesus. I'm not even going to challenge you to go out and tell people about Jesus. I'm going to just tell you, go spend time on a daily basis with Jesus. Go spend time in the Bible. Go spend time in prayer. Remember how I've been challenging you in your homework to go daily ask God to reveal a little bit more what you can handle of this glorious salvation that we've been given. And as you go spend time with Jesus, all of a sudden, that glory that is already in you is going to be revealed more and more. We're daily being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ from one degree of glory to another. We who with unveiled faces behold his glory and spend time with him. When that happens, we just can't help but tell people about what's or they're just going to notice. Y'all remember? And that's what's between the verses I skipped in 2 Corinthians 3. I looked at verses 4 through 6 and then jumped down to verse 17 and 18. Do y'all know what's in between? The story of how Moses, when he was on the mountain, just by being in the presence of God, his face visibly glowed to the point that when he came down from the mountain, everybody was freaked out and they said, put a veil. In the same way, when we spend time with Jesus, the light of Christ himself, the light of life, it, he will just begin to take over. In Acts chapter 4, we're not going to turn there. In Acts chapter 4, we see that the disciples have been told to no longer preach in this name. And they said, we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. Not because we've been commanded to go preach. No. Remember how Jesus said it again in Matthew 18? Sorry, 28 verses 18 through 20. Go and make disciples. I'm with you. I'm with you. Oh, by the way, at the end of that story there in Acts chapter 4, after they said, we can't help about just speaking about what we've seen and heard. It's just coming out of us. We can't help it. The, a few verses later, it says that they all said, these guys have been with Jesus. My prayer is that in the time between now and when we come back together in a couple of, a couple of months, that somebody says, you've been with Jesus. And you didn't even have to tell them. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a coworker, Maybe it's a kid. But all of a sudden they notice something's happened to you or happening to you. You don't normally react that way. Take your eyes off of what's going on in the world and let the Lord speak to your heart because right now he's working on his church. Oh, and as we let him work on his church, he'll also use us in the world. But you shine for Jesus by just simply spending time with Jesus. I love you guys. We'll see you in a couple of months. Thanks for coming.